I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. Today, I interviewed John Anzalone, who has over 25 years of polling experience and has polled for presidential campaigns of Obama in 08 and 2012 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. He's helped U.S. senators, governors, and dozens of members of Congress, and most recently polled for North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper and the fight against the state's anti-LGBT laws. Um, in the last two gates, decades, he's uh, helped beat more incumbent Republicans and take back more Republican seats than any other polling firm in the nation. Um, and we go all the way back in this conversation. We start with the upcoming election in Alabama where John lives and, and is helping support Doug Jones. But we go all the way back to Joe Biden's race in 87, uh, which was John's first uh, presidential race, and then talk about uh, working for James Carville before Carville went to go work for uh, Clinton. Um, and then we just talk generally about what it means for Democrats to win back the South. This is a super enjoyable conversation. So let's jump right in. John, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. So, John, you are a resident of the great state of Alabama. You know, my dad lives in Foley and, you know, I spent a lot of time in the South as a kid visiting my dad in Alabama and then uh, spent the past six years in Tennessee and Mississippi. Um, we're going to talk a lot about what Democrats can do to win in the South, but we've got urgent matters here. We've got uh, a good Democrat running against uh, a uh, super flawed Republican candidate. You want to uh, paint the scene for us about what's happening in Alabama? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of times national Democrats, people who aren't in Alabama, they think he's flawed just because of all of his awful statements and he's in his beliefs, which he is. I mean, those are awful. I mean, you know, we as Democrats, if we're not going to take this guy on, what do we stand for? Right. I mean, we, we got to take this challenge on regardless if it's in, you know, really red Alabama. Um, but what people I don't think fully appreciate or understand is that, you know, Roy Moore has always kind of been a weak general election candidate. He's run statewide, you know, I think four or five times, two of the times in general election he's won, but they have never been very impressive wins. And so in 2012, he ran for chief justice uh, for the second time, and he won uh, against a Democratic Jefferson County judge, a guy named Bob Vance, who has an interesting story himself. But Moore only got 51.7 percent of the vote. And this is the exact same time that Romney is like getting 60.8 percent of the vote. And this is already past the time when Republicans have literally taken every statewide office um, in Alabama. So it's not like, oh, it's five years ago. And, you know, that's 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 a long time ago. This is when Republicans have already, you know, basically marched across the state and are winning in the 60 percent levels. And this guy is barely squeaking by with 51.7 percent. So even in Alabama, which people, again, tend to put in the boxes, this kind of right wing weird place, um, there are dis detractors. And that means that there's also, you know, independents and, you know, soft Republicans and, you know, college educated whites, et cetera, who find this guy offensive uh, and don't want them to represent uh, the state. And I think that is one of the reasons why it's competitive. But the other reason is that Doug Jones 
is a real candidate. I mean, an awesome candidate. You can pick this guy up and put him anywhere and he would be an awesome candidate. He is not only a former U.S. attorney who has taken on the big fights and put criminals in jail and taken on big corporations for their malfeasance, um, but he also, after 30 years of it being cold, took on the 16th Street bomber uh, bombers and put them in jail. Um, and he's also, by the way, the son of a steel worker. So he has a real middle class story to tell. Uh, he has a story of a tough prosecutor, uh, which we think, you know, is tough uh, for, you know, the Republicans to paint him as some type of big liberal um, with uh, with such a with such a good story to tell. And so tell us a little bit. Uh, so in talking about more. I think people don't fully understand uh, who this guy is yet because, uh, you know, I think people throw one flood Republican candidate in with the rest. Um, what what are some of the more controversial views he's had? Uh, and uh, and let's also talk a little bit about what got him in some uh, legal trouble back with the uh, the Ten Commandments issue. Yeah, I think that. You know, what people kind of know about him is that he is the Ten Commandments judge. And as a circuit judge, he put that up in his courtroom and, you know, it became a it became controversial, of course. Uh, And then he ran for Supreme Court and he won. And interestingly enough, in 2000, he only won with 50, like four and a half percent. And so in 2012, when he ran again, he actually got less of the vote in the general election and went down to 51.7. So while Republicans are getting bigger votes, he's getting smaller votes. And he had already been thrown off the court uh, at one time, one time by the, at that time. And so you can see that there was a reaction to people and his vote has actually gone down from 2000 to 2012. He becomes Supreme Court justice and in the middle of the night puts this, you know, big, but whatever, five ton uh, um, monument to the Ten Commandments. Uh, which, hey, you know, people love the Ten Commandments. They just want to see it in church and not in their, you know, state courthouse, um, their appellate courthouse. Um, interestingly enough, at the time, the attorney general, who was a guy named Bill Pryor and a Republican who is now a U.S. federal judge, um, took him on uh, and, you know, said, you can't do that. Uh, and he said, yeah, I can. And he got thrown off the court. Um, you know, go to 2012. He runs again. He gets on the court. Uh, again, the federal, the U.S. Supreme Court comes down and says, hey, you know, you, people can marry uh, if they're in, with the same sex, same sex marriage. He says, no, no, you can't. That's a, you know, abhorrent to God. And we're not going to allow it in um, in Alabama. And uh, again, for the second time, doesn't follow the, the law of the land as a judge and gets thrown off the court. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what people know him about, but he has attacked just about everyone, whether it's, you know, saying that nine 11, the nine 11 attacks were basically, you know, God, uh, putting, uh, you know, make, making a statement against Americans moving away from their values to his attacks against uh, gays, uh, to his attacks against Muslims. Didn't believe that Ellison should be able to you know, take the oath of office uh, as a congressman because he was a Muslim to his attack against, you know, um, uh, African-Americans. I mean, he is he has been about it's just more than just not being politically correct. This is a guy who judges people uh, uh, himself, uh, 
Uh, as James Carville likes to say, he, he only basically uh, likes nine of the Ten Commandments, depending on which ones you, you see that he has broken. Um, he has just been literally himself kind of abhorrent to just about anyone um, uh, uh, that he has attacked. And, uh, you know, quick, just factual question. Why is this race uh, taking place on December 12th and not on a traditional uh, election day? Yeah. So basically, this is Jeff Sessions' um, seat, right? I mean, you know, Jeff Sessions gets appointed to uh, be U.S. Attorney General. It opens a seat. The governor at the time, who had to leave office because of his own problems, uh, uh, appointed the current, the the former state attorney general, uh, a guy named Luther Strange, who becomes the acting U.S. Senate senator. Kay Ivey, the new governor, Republican woman, comes in and says, "Hey, I'm calling a special election, uh, which is you know the right thing to do. Let people vote." Uh, and that's how Luther Strange, the appointed U.S. senator. Um, loses in the primary, which, as you can imagine, a special election Republican primary and runoff is a very restricted universe. You almost have to have a special DNA to vote in elections like that. Moore has a base. But more importantly, maybe Luther is a weak candidate. He's seen as kind of a tool of the former governor who was under investigation. And so Luther really never uh, uh, had a base uh, and quite frankly, uh, never had the, the, the right branding or campaign message to beat um, someone like Roy Moore, who everyone knew, uh, who had a very clear message and was railing against uh, having Luther Strange shoved down their throats by Mitch McConnell uh, uh, and, and Trump. And it, it backfired, uh, the uh, involvement from the National Party. Um, and there you have um, Roy Moore winning 55 or something percent against the appointed U.S. senator. And so, you know, I, when I was in uh, Mississippi, when uh, Thad Cochran warded off uh, a challenge from McDaniels, it seemed like, the, you know, a, uh, a step towards where we are right now, where all across the country, there's this uh, separate wing of the Republican Party that feels emboldened. Uh, more than ever because of Trump's election and because of certain mascots they have, like Steve Bannon. I mean, it's making its way all the way to where I grew up in Staten Island now, where, you know, formerly incarcerated member of Congress, Michael Grimm, is is challenging Dan Donovan, who's seen as more of an establishment Republican. What do you see as some of the themes? You know, you're a pollster, uh, and you, but you're also a, a resident of a state where these dynamics are playing out in front of your eyes. What do you see as some of the themes that separate those two parts of the Republican Party? Um, you know, obviously, like there's this idea of what is the establishment and what isn't. Um, but let's go even deeper. Like, what does that mean to voters? Well, I think that there's a couple things going on. In some ways, these voters who are rebelling in the Republican primary don't really think of themselves as Republicans. I think with that, we have to keep in mind. And the interesting dynamic in the runoff between Roy Moore and Luther Strange was is, is that even though President Trump endorsed Luther Strange, um, a good 50 percent or so of Trump voters were voting for Roy Moore because he embodied kind of what Trump was, which was a complete total outsider um, who felt that the system uh, is broken and could go up there and really make uh, make some change and some headway. Um, and so I think we have to realize that, you know, McDaniel is going to run again. Uh, in um, Mississippi, you have this Matheson guy in Utah, you have Grimm, et cetera. 
that a lot of people who are going to be participating in these primaries actually don't really um, look at themselves as Republicans anymore. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, I kind of started polling in the Deep South right around 94 when Gingrich took the House. And we really started seeing massive amount of white voters move to the Republican Party. We saw a lot of party switching, et cetera. And the biggest argument or the biggest statement you would get in focus groups, et cetera, among whites who used to be Democrats that were now considering themselves Republicans was the party left me. Right. And I think that that same dynamic is happening in the Republican primary right now, where Republicans feel that the Republican Party has left them. Um, And I think that that's why you're seeing the dynamic of the Bannons of the world being able to use uh, uh, as an accelerant the political environment in these Republican primaries to run against the establishment Republicans to run against the McConnells of the world, but also just basically the system that they feel is broken and nothing can get done. You're in a political environment where the Republicans hold the presidency, U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and God knows almost, you know, a disproportionate number of legislatures and governor's uh, offices, and they can't see anything getting done. And so they're viewing the system being broken in a completely different way than we as Democrats are and maybe even uh, independents are. And that is a real problem uh, for the Republican Party, not only in primaries, but in general elections as well. And I think that the manifestation of that is what you're seeing in these special elections all across the country where Democrats are outperforming. Democratic Performance Index in these really red seats, these special elections in Congress, by 8, 10, 12 points. And that is a good, good sign for Democrats in 2018. And, you know, Northerners uh, and, and folks on, on on both coasts, I think when they think about the South, they generally think of it as, as a homogenous sort of place, like each state is the same. But, you know, you've worked in a number of different states um, that are quite different. And, you know, I think of, for instance, Tennessee, uh, given the dynamics of Nashville, it's completely different than Mississippi in terms of uh, the trends of its politics. And North Carolina is one of those places where it's definitely not uh, you can't really paint with a broad brush when you're talking about the South, when you talk about a place like North Carolina. And, you know, as evidence, you uh, recently worked on uh, that governor's race. Um, what pulled Cooper over the top there? And uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, the uh, extremely unethical behavior of the Republicans in trying to to cling to power and prevent Cooper from being effective after he yeah. won. Well, Roy Cooper, uh, one, one of my oldest clients, what's interesting about North Carolina is that we were involved in, in the last two Democratic governors being elected in the South, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. Um, in in 15 and then Roy Cooper in 16. And they're very different states where Louisiana is very much still a deep South state. Um, And that's what gives hope to someone like Doug Jones is that, you know, John Bell Edwards can win. And he was again running against a flawed candidate like Vitter, just like Moore is flawed. And so that, 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 that is probably more parallel to why this race can be competitive. Where North Carolina has become like the new South. Um, but it would be a huge mistake um, to believe that, again, you know, North Carolina is still a large swath of it is very rural. You have the Appalachian part in the western part of the state in the mountains. So you have some very, really difficult 
uh, areas for Democrats um, uh, more than, you know, the Research Triangle and Charlotte and in Greensboro, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is extraordinary about the 2016 election in North Carolina is that the second that transgender bathrooms became an issue, everyone thought that the Democrat was going to lose, that they were using a wedge issue. And what happened was it came to bite McCrory back in the ass. And uh, Roy Moore, you know, I'm I'm sorry, Roy Cooper, uh, I think, you know, used that issue not just as kind of a wedge issue, but you know, once the NBA started pulling out and companies like PayPal started coming out, it became much more real to voters that this was also about jobs, that this was about the economy and that this wasn't who we were as North Carolinians. And Roy Moore was able to capture that and use that to his advantage and not be afraid of you know, the transgender issue as an issue. He didn't back away from taking the fight because he realized that voters didn't believe that this should be a priority and that McCrory was being political and that on one face of it, it was wrong to treat these people uh, differently, but maybe even more importantly, in some ways that this was not good for the state and that it was bad for the economy. And Roy Moore was again, an attorney general, So like Doug Jones was a prosecutor and had really good stories to be able to tell about taking on bad actors, uh, mostly on the corporate side of it. But he also grew up in rural uh, North Carolina in Nash County and, you know, worked on the farm with his with his father. And so he had this story to tell that was rich in the culture and values of the state. And that became an important component Uh, of his victory as well, is that he was one of them. Uh, And in the South, I think sometimes, you know, there's a price of admission uh, uh, for Democrats to show that they're not national Democrats. And both John Bell Edwards uh, and Roy Cooper were able to, you know, brand themselves in a way that was real uh, and believable because it was. John Bell Edwards went to West Point and he was able to talk about you know, his uh, his values and what honor meant. Uh, And Roy Cooper, you know, grew up in a small town with a mom who was a teacher and who, you know, his dad made work in the in the uh, uh, in the fields. And so there was a values about his background and his upbringing. Uh, Guess what? Doug Jones is the son of a steel worker who never thought he'd go to law school. So there's stories here that are really important as a first foundational step for running in the South um, that gets you notice and gets you consideration by a universe of voter that normally wouldn't vote for a Democrat because all they're seeing is the face of the leaders up in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, another state that uh, I think is getting a lot of attention right now and, and could be trending favorable to Democrats is Georgia. And you have a, a Democratic primary there that's getting really hot. Uh, between what they call the the two Stacys, yeah. Um, I know you've done a lot of work in Georgia. I'm not sure if you're working on on any of those two races, but um, tell us a little bit about whether you think there's some truth to to Georgia trending towards Democrats and yeah. and how you see the 18 cycle. Yeah. So full disclosure, my partner Zach McCreary is actually working for the Sarah uh, of uh, uh, the I'm sorry the Evans of the of the two. Um, uh, so there's, there's Evans and Stacy, the Stacy Evans and Stacy 
Abrams and she got it. And let me uh, full disclosure on our part. Uh, one of my partners is uh, a big Abrams. That's, uh, that's great. Well, and, so and we were, we were, we were, for Jason Carter, who is just a fantastic, uh, gubernatorial candidate in 2014. And then we did the DSCC independent expenditure for Michelle Nunn. And I think what's important about that is that they were the first real serious candidates in a decade. And in some ways, the expectations almost got too big. I mean, in November of 2015, there's no one running. And then they, these two big names with kind of legacy names come in. They both run really good uh, campaigns. Georgia is the next um, battleground state in America for electoral politics, I believe. Um, and it's not just demographics. It's very much what's happened that made North Carolina uh, the last battleground state and, and the purplest of purple states is that, you know, there's a big technology universe in Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta gets a lot of people from other parts of the country. Uh, it's, you know, a thriving uh, uh, city uh, 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 where young people and millennials want to be. The city of Atlanta is actually increasing its its population of white Vote white people because of millennials coming back into the uh, to the city, and so there's again this different feel uh, for Georgia than what what it was ten years ago. But if you take a look at 2008 and 2012 in in the presidentials, um, it is the state um, that Obama lost the most narrowly of any state that didn't have you know, big paid communications. And so Romney won it, but Romney won it with the smallest margin of any state that he won. Um, same thing, I think, believe with McCain. And so if Democrats nationally make an investment in the infrastructure uh, of Georgia, I believe it becomes the next online state. And that may start with the gubernatorial um, but you have to put money in the infrastructure. It doesn't happen overnight. In 2008, Barack Obama put money in the infrastructure of North Carolina and it paid off and he won. But it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to put an investment in states like Georgia and Arizona to make them real. Great. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I just say one other thing, one other thing is because, you know, there's a lot of knocking of Ossoff in the race. But the, again, the fact is, what are the benefits and the byproducts of that race, um, which I think we were part of and I think was run very well, is that he outperformed Democratic Performance Index by 12 points. I mean, think about that. The average of the last two Democratic congressional candidates in a normal election cycle got like 36. He got 48. He outperformed by 12 points the normal Democratic performance index there. He increased the absolute number of African-Americans uh, in that since uh, uh, close to what it was in a uh, in a presidential. And so there were real things happening there uh, in terms of the percentage of the white vote going for the Democrat, so, you know, the suburban white vote, African-Americans, uh, even Asians, which there's a, uh, uh, in Hispanic, which is there, there's a decent increasing population. And so, you know, D.C. and doesn't want to, they only want winter losses. I get that. But the fact is, is that they were really beneficial byproducts of what happened uh, in that congressional district, even though we lost. And so uh, in kind of rounding out the conversation, I want to take it all the way back to one of your first races, maybe your first race ever. Um, starting in 1987, you went to Iowa to work for uh, a, a young senator, Joe Biden. 
running uh, for president for the first time. And, you know, this that race, the 88 race, was uh, written about by Richard Ben Kramer. It was definitely one of the races that uh, people uh, in my age group uh, talk a lot about, uh, you know, because of that book and because it's it, for a lot of us, it was the first presidential we could remember. Um, what was it like uh, being on the ground in Iowa with Joe Biden in 1987 running for president? Yeah. Well, first, I want to say the Ben Kramer book is great, but younger people should. And I always give this as a gift. They should also read the Theodore White 1960 making of a president, which was the first book like that and reads like literature uh, is, a you know, naturally the Kennedy uh, uh, Nixon race, but making of the president series are just phenomenal books. Uh, and you should go back and read those, uh, as well. Joe Biden is still my absolute favorite boss, um, because at the time, you know, it's 19, you know, 87, I think I turned 23 during the, the campaign. It was when there was, you know, eight or nine different Democratic candidates in their heart was in it dropped out. And you had, of course, had Dukakis and you had Gephardt and you had Babbitt and you had Simon. And it was just a, a splendid uh, era of politics where there was no cell phones and computers and things like that. It was really grassroots. And you had a bunch of young people who were working against each other, but were friends and, you know, uh, party together at night and things like that. But Joe Biden was just as amazing then as he is now because he is genuine uh, and he is good people. I mean, he uh, took an interest in you. Uh, he remembered your name. He gave you nicknames. He would call me Zoe uh, and he would engage. And he still does that today. I literally saw him a week ago, Tuesday uh, at an event. Uh, and it was just a fan. It's always a fantastic engagement because he's such a good person and a good man. And he's very passionate and he speaks in a way that is real to people. Um, you know, sometimes people knock him for some of the things he says, but it always comes from the heart. Uh, it, it always comes uh, with a certain passion and it comes with a reality uh, of how real people uh, think and talk. And I think that's the magic of Joe Biden is, uh, you know, he is the kid from Scranton and he understands um, what it is uh, growing up, not knowing exactly what's at the next turn or how things are going to uh, work out. And that's where most Americans are. And so he speaks their language uh, and he connects and he's endearing. And uh, more than anything, they believe that he believes in them and that he's going to fight for them. And, and that's Joe Biden. And so uh, you then went to work uh, and probably not right away, but a couple years later, you went to go work for James Carville uh, before he went uh, to uh, Bill Clinton. Right, before and he was famous. He was, campaign, yeah, he was campaign manager for Frank Lautenberg, who was his first reelection in New Jersey. Um, he was a campaign manager. Paul Begala was a communications director. I was the uh, political director. Um, Larry Grizzolano of Obama fame was the coordinated campaign director. It was just, wow, I used to sit across from Larry. I, I used to, in the general election in 08, I was Axelrod's assistant, and uh, I used to watch Larry in that glass office yeah. uh, starting out yeah, all the ads. It's just amazing. Uh, Peter Greco was the um, field director for Dukakis. Doug Sosnick was the oh my God. state director for Dukakis. It was just an amazing group of people. Uh, it was the best experience, one of the best experiences I've ever had. 
James to this day says it was the best campaign team he's ever put together. We had a 20 year uh, uh, reunion. Uh, uh, also, it was just it was a phenomenal campaign. It was before uh, James and Paul became famous, but uh, it was at the height of their, you know, they, they were just, they're just so good strategically. Uh, they, they were, they ran that campaign masterfully. Uh, and it was, it was really quite, quite an experience. Yeah. And I think to, to sort of end this conversation and, you know, there's, we've got to do a part two one day to talk about what's happened since, which, you know, you've worked on a lot of uh, the major democratic campaigns for president over the past few years, but you know, there's, you know, as a kid, my mom had me watch The War Room um, and you see Marvel's emotions uh, as uh, they're closing out uh, that campaign when he gives that famous speech to the campaign. And I think, you know, part of it must have been that those guys were coming up um, and you probably saw this firsthand in relative obscurity, fighting uh, to, to effectively communicate with voters during a time when Democrats were really struggling um, to break through nationally. Well, um, and, and interestingly enough, you know, James and I are still good friends and talk almost weekly. He still has that passion. Um, most people see him as a TV commentator and, you know, uh, somewhat eccentric. Um, but I think one of the things that I admire most about him right now, uh, and you just saw it in a most recent Jonathan Martin, um, uh, New York times, uh, uh, article about this Alabama Senate race is Carvel's the one that says if, if we as Democrats don't get behind someone quality like Doug Jones to fight someone as abhorrent as Roy Moore, what is it that we stand for? And he's really leading that charge that candidates should who put themselves out there, quality candidates who put themselves out there, even in the toughest of states or times or political environments, should be rewarded. You know, he's talking about Mackler and Dean uh, in Tennessee. Right. And he's talking about the, the people who will run in places like Georgia and Mississippi and Louisiana, that if we have quality candidates, damn it, um, we should be supporting them uh, because they're making a sacrifice and they need our help. And, and he's really very passionate about that right now. And I commend him for it. And I think it's going to pay dividends. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having us.